I'm like, I need to speak to my probation officer. Now, like the first thing before I rang my mum, and I had to ring my probation officer for a number of things. I had to, one, to let her know that I was safe, two, to let her know that I had done nothing wrong, and three, because I didn't want the victims of my crimes to turn on the TV and see my face on there, because I felt if they complained, could that then get me recalled? This is Mark Conway. He intervened in the London Bridge terror attack in November 2019. He has an incredible story to tell. So you called your probation officer before you called your mum? Of course. Mark is also an IPP prisoner who is now on licence. When I introduce myself when we're talking about prison and IPP sentences, I still say that I'm still serving an IPP sentence because of the stringent licence conditions. I believe that the prison side of things is only the first part. And as you see by recall rates, the, the outside bit isn't too easy either. I'm Sama Samadu, and this is Trapped, Episode 8. Today we're talking to two people who are on licence from their IPP sentence. And we're looking at what happens when you are out on licence from this sentence. I should warn you that this episode contains some distressing accounts of self-harm and suicide. So when did you initially get an IPP, and did you know what it was at the time? You've heard the IPP, like most members of society you hear about it but you don't really know what it entails so in 2010 I was arrested for a uh, armed robbery and I had previously had uh, firearm offences and that on my record so I, I was eligible if you call it that for the IPP sentence and I didn't really understand what it was even when I was being sentenced and I got sentenced in 2011 to five years five months of IPP it was only when you get into the system under them kind of stringent conditions you start to realise what actually the IPP sentence was. It took me about three years to get my head around what IPP meant. Our second story comes from Andrew Morris. He served 12 and a half years on an IPP. I got my IPP in 2007. I was given a tariff of one year and 200 days. The IPP, or Imprisonment for Public Protection Sentence, is an indeterminate sentence. The sentence is set up so that IPPs, in this case both Mark and Andrew, have to prove they are not a risk to the public in front of a parole board before they can be released into the community. If they are released, their problems aren't over. IPPs are given a licence which enables their probation officer to recall them back to prison at any time if they break their licence conditions. The licence is for life, but can be terminated after 10 years from the initial release date at the parole board's discretion until now. Alex Chalk has announced he is reviewing reducing the qualifying period for terminating the licence from 10 years to 5. Here he is speaking to the Justice and Home Affairs Committee on the 25th of October 2023. The recommendation was that that 10-year period should be curtailed to 5 years, I think there are grounds for looking at that five-year period or even whether one goes further than that. And then the second issue to consider is whether there should be a presumption that the licence should lapse, which I think could make a significant difference. It's not betraying any confidences to say that you know, the, the Prime Minister himself recognises the iniquity of this situation and is working closely with me to try to resolve it. It's a welcome change for the government, who previously rejected all the key Justice Select Committee recommendations on IPPs, this being one. Anyway, let's get back to Andrew's story and the moment he got his IPP sentence. 
I was really confused because I remember being in court and I remember hearing the judge say that ordinarily he would have been giving a sentence of, of four years for the offences that I'd committed or certainly the ones I'd pleaded to. He then decided to um, go into a spiel uh, which I had no clue really what, what it meant except for then hearing the word I heard discretionary life and I heard indeterminate and I'd like to think that I'm, I've got some kind of sense about me I know what those things mean I just didn't really understand completely what they meant in that situation and neither did my barrister When did you start to work out what an IPP sentence actually was? When I left court and I heard that I had this tariff I thought I had a tariff of four years and struggled to get my head around that then it was explained to me that actually my tariff was half of that and I thought, okay, that's, you know, that's not so bad, that doesn't sound too bad. And then I was told that I would not be released until the parole board deemed that I was safe enough to be released and then it started to dawn on me. Could you tell us about your parole process? The parole process starts from the very first day that you walk through the door. You, but you don't realise that, you don't realise the spotlight's on you from day one, you can't show that you're too happy because then it looks like you're not taking your offence serious or the sentence serious enough. If you show that you're too sad, it might show that you're mentally unstable to be released. So for, you're forever under that spotlight. So for me, the parole process started from day one. Like That's always playing on your mind. I, I described it once as walking through a minefield, but on eggshells. I went three years over my tariff, my recommended tariff, so I feel extremely lucky but I still went over my tariff and still didn't put a foot wrong and still done everything that was expected. So people from the outside would go, well, that's out of order. You still went three years over. But actually, if you then deep dive into the murky waters of the IPP uh, sentence, you realise I was extremely lucky. The stress of having to always prove yourself is immense. You know, you, you, you know that your phone calls are listened to, you know that your mail's being read, you know you're being assessed by not just prison officers and the OMU department and probation officers like top psychologists and top therapists and you'll know that you, every move that you are you're making is being watched and assessed. Mark made it clear that with so many professionals involved in the parole process, it puts pressure on IPPs throughout serving their sentences. Prison psychologists are very much not popular with IPP prisoners. I mean, that's an understatement. A lot of the time they're hated, really hated, and I can completely understand why. I wanted to get another perspective on the prisoner psychologist relationship, so I spoke to Sophie Ellis, a criminologist and PhD researcher at Cambridge University. She formerly worked in psychology for the prison service. Ultimately, psychologist decisions are extremely highly respected by other decision makers in the system. And what the psychologist says can, can turn your case one way or the other. Um, and, you know, who would want anyone to have that power over them? There is a certain kind of distress in hearing yourself rendered through a psychological lens in a way that you don't really recognise, which can really be distressing. When it's your personality on the line that's being assessed, that, that's a really intense thing to think, right, I've got to... I've got to get to a certain point where I have what is deemed to be a safe personality. There's no changing the fact that if you're there to write a risk assessment report, that report is going somewhere and that report will have consequences. The strain of going through therapy and knowing that how you do in therapy could affect your freedom 
What does this do to the prisoner-psychologist relationship? Therapy was never developed for those kind of conditions. Therapy relies on a, a voluntary entering into of it, of feeling safe, of having trust. And given that IPP is so reliant on, on that rehabilitative ethos, we couldn't have really designed a worse sentence to undermine the key ingredients of rehabilitation, really. Because people do respond better when they enter into something voluntarily, when they feel safe, when they feel comfortable, and that gives them the psychological space to really look at their issues. When you're serving IPP, I mean, I, I say this based on accounts that have been told to me, but you know, all you can think about is your sentence and getting out and what every little interaction means and how it's going to be rendered on paper. So even if you're someone that really genuinely wants help with your problems, where is the psychological space to do that underneath the burden of IPP? Outside of prison, the relationship between a patient and therapist is built on trust. But as Sophie highlights, IPP serving prisoners know that any trust they have with their therapist is more conditional as ultimately, the psychologists are there to do risk assessments and act as an arm of the prison service, a system which is built to contain them. I think individually, you will get some psychologists who have worked successfully with IPP prisoners in a, in a, in a clinical way, and you'll get some psychologists who will work very, very hard within the boundaries of risk assessment to try and progress that person forward. But systemically, they are helping to keep people in prison. So, so are probation, so, so are all of the administrators, by continuing to act within this system. You know, sorry to, to coin the phrase, but I did, I felt really trapped. I dare say that there are lots of people that are still in that situation right now who, you know, continue to feel trapped. You know, when I first got sentenced, one of two things would be written on my cell card, either 99 years or the word life. I kept thinking, eventually they're going to get this right, there's a mistake, and it will be rectified but it wasn't, you know, and I went from prison to prison to prison. And the only thing that changed was that it, it went from writing life or 99 years to sometimes just leaving it completely blank. And I was okay with that because it meant I didn't have to see 99 years or life every time I entered or left my, left my cell. Can you tell me more about how you survived in prison dealing with this indeterminate sentence? I just felt frustrated at times being in prison, trying to be a good person but having some people trying to convince me that I was actually you know a really bad individual who'd done some really bad things and then I, I just had to question myself and think actually it's not true you know it isn't it isn't true yes all right I committed an offense and as a result of the law as it was at that time an IPP was as the, the judge put it it was made out he had to give me an indeterminate sentence how were things with the prison officers inside one of the things I felt particularly in, in, in prison was that there were prison staff who knew the value to them of somebody being on an indeterminate sentence because if you were seen in any way not to toe the line, to do as you were told, if you in any way railed against the system, made complaints, then you know, you'd, you'd be punished. It would hold you back. In their submission to the Justice Committee inquiry in 2021, the Association of Prison Lawyers summarised why IPP prisoners fail to progress through their sentence. Lack of resources, becoming institutionalised and a lack of assistance after many years served within prison are the main reasons. There is only very limited availability of psychology interventions and assessments, even though they usually have complex mental health needs. 
Such people have lost hope and their behaviour has declined to the point that probation will not support release. I asked Mark and Andrew for their takes on this and what makes IPPs so vulnerable. If you take away someone's hope, you're, you're, you're vulnerable from, from the off, you know. I suggest serving a sentence like an IPP, the system removes the knowledge of self. And when you have got no knowledge of oneself, then you start to behave in ways that you expect your environment for you to behave in, you take on other personas. That could be the personas of the prison, the state, how they want you to behave and stuff like that. But that's dangerous because when you get out of prison, the outside world isn't regimented like a prison. So you, you see that within the high number of recalls, right? Or you take on the persona of the, what you expect that the prison estate and the people that live there expect you to take on because you have no knowledge of oneself you start to take on other personas, and which that means you might be misbehaving, your mental health is good. Either way, your mental health is, whatever route you take, is, is massively affected. According to the latest figures, there are 1,597 IPP prisoners recalled to custody, more than half of the total of 2,909 IPP prisoners. Between 2010 and 2021, of the 7,852 recall incidents, 39% were for non-compliance with licence conditions, 14% were failure to reside, 9% for drugs or alcohol, 6% for failure to keep in touch, 4% were for poor behaviours, and 0.4% for failed home visits, and 4% for other reasons. Now the problem why we see so high recall rates is because the system has created this but they don't have a backup plan for when you get out, the services are just not there. For the prison projections forecast period July 2021 to March 2026, the Ministry of Justice estimated that significantly more IPP prisoners are expected to be recalled than released. You could let every IPP prisoner out right now, but you will be setting a lot of them up to fail because the service is not there to deal with the, the pains and the mental health issues that has been created by the sentence in the first place. So what, what, what do you do? There's you know, many things that you can do, but I would suggest you give back hope. The indefinite nature of the IPP sentence is psychologically harmful, as evidenced by the emotional and mental deterioration of IPP prisoners when they enter the post-tariff stage of their sentence and the disproportionately high self-harm and suicide rate. In a May 2023 Independent Monitoring Board report, they highlighted that in 2023, there were three self-inflicted deaths in just the four weeks following the government's rejection of the Justice Committee recommendations for resentencing. I can share the joy, but there is pain. And the pain is that at the beginning, I wanted to take my life, but I couldn't share that with anybody because I was terrified, one, how they would look at me, but more importantly, the way they would treat me. When you feel like you want to take your life, you have suicidal ideation, you're placed on a document called an ACT document. It's a bright orange document, and an officer will carry that about with them and hand it to So if you're going to work, it will follow you to work. If you're going to visits, it will follow you to visits. If you're going to education, it will follow... It will fo you get the picture. It's embarrassing. So they sort of branded you? Yeah. There was a lot of branding, you know, because I remember once being unlocked to go to mental health inreach, and I remember the officer opening the door and saying, Slashers Group... And I, and I realised in that moment that, you know, again, there was another brand in it. I think there needs to be more information given to people 
serving IPP about what's being done and how to understand that sentence. There, there's so much that can be done to help the psyche of people. 2021, three people committed suicide as IPP. 2022, that trebled to nine people committed suicide. What does it say that people would prefer to kill themselves than to serve this sentence? That goes against everything that the justice system should be set up to be. That's not justice. When I was serving my sentence, I was next door to a guy serving IPP and he was something like 10 years over Tariff and he felt like he was so forgotten by people outside, by the system. He said that he didn't have a voice and no one was seeing him, so he sewed up his mouth and he sewed up his eyes. For me, that is such a massive statement that people would prefer to sew up their own mouth because they don't feel like their voice is being listened to. Mark's horrendous story of this IPP protest is just as jarring as Andrew's, who witnessed the deterioration and eventual suicide of a fellow IPP prisoner. It's a sad fact that all the IPP prisoners I've spoken to have known other IPPs who have either self-harmed or taken their own lives. This young man was my neighbour for about a year and he was in for robbing a mobile phone. He got a 12-month tariff and three years later he was convinced that there was no hope and he was never going to get out of prison and he took his life. When you're around people, you know, day in and day out, 24 hours a day or 23 hours a day at least, you get to feel when they're in a good mood, when they're in a bad mood, when they're thoughtful, contemplative, whatever. And this particular kid, and he was a kid because he was only 25 at the time he took his life, his energy dipped and I went and I did something that I've never done before or since. I went to the authorities and I said to them, I think you need to keep an eye on this, this, this guy because I'm concerned for him. It was about a week or so later that he took his life on the 4th of February 2010. Uh, I remember that day, it's etched into my head because the difficulty is when you've got so many personalities, if somebody really wants to take their life, they're going to take their life. But I think he, he could have been saved. And every year when the 4th of February comes, I regret it because I just think that they, you know, the system, could have done a little bit more. Because one, the one thing he was asking for at that particular time in his vulnerable state was a phone call. He didn't have any phone credit. He didn't have anyone sending him lots of money. He did have family members. And it was heartbreaking that when he did die, I saw something that I've not seen before or since either. Another first for me was that his family members came into the prison to a church service that we were all at. So prisoners came to this church service. We didn't know that they were going to be that his sister, his mum and his grandmother all came to this service. And... I'm going to give him his name. His name was Danny. I was asked to speak about Danny, which I did, and I wrote some notes. I mean, I knew Danny, but I wrote some notes just to make sure that I shared everything. And it broke my heart that afterwards his mother came up to me and asked me if she could keep my notes. And I said, of course you can. The, you know, the cloud that enveloped the prison was, was dreadful. And for me, uh, tragically, you know, that, that really typifies IPP for me. I could feel the sense of hopelessness. I find it inexcusable and unforgivable that his life has been lost as a result of a system that chooses not to correct itself because it wants to be defiant to the end. Sophie worked as an assistant and then trainee psychologist in the prison service for just under 10 years. I asked her how it feels to have been part of administering the IPP sentence. So... I think the first thing to establish about that is that it's very difficult to talk about things inside the system, whether you're still working for it or not. When you first join the prison service, you're asked to sign the Official Secrets Act, 
but the act of signing it signifies to you very clearly you are not allowed to speak about HMPPS business or Ministry of Justice business, which makes it very, very difficult to comment on anything from inside the system. It creates a bit of a culture of fear. But I can talk about my feelings on it because my feelings are mine and nobody else owns those. And I feel, I feel morally responsible for administering the IPP sentence. I was part of it. Probably some of my decisions contributed to keeping people in prison. Whereas if I were to look back on those cases now with the benefit of hindsight and, and more thought on the IPP, I probably wouldn't be okay with those decisions that I made. I mean, there were many reasons why I left the prison service. IPP was not the sole reason, but it was certainly a contributor where I increasingly thought, I, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be part of inflicting this sentence on people. And it's one of those things where you have to decide whether you can make a difference from within or without. And ever since I left, I've tried to make a difference from without. That's why I do a lot of what I do with Ungrip. I feel I, I feel I owe it to people to try and make up for being part of that. It's not like me absolving the moral stain on my conscience is tangibly going to help anybody serving IPP. But I hope that my actions will. I hope that somehow I can make a difference to, to what people are going through. We've got this sentence where the justice ministers and the politicians are, are all in agreement that something needs to happen, but no one don't want to be brave enough to, to take that. So when someone else cuts their self, when someone else gets refused on a parole, when someone else commits suicide, the blood is on their hands. And that's the truth. Like you, Someone has to be brave. Someone has to, has to start putting proper reforms in place because my fear is in 10 years' time, we're still talking to people that serve life with three prison sentences. Actually, if people just listened to people and took advice from people like Ungrips, like Prison Reform Trust and Howard League and all these types of people that actually know what they're talking about when it comes to this, then it, in two or three years' time, we could have this cleared up. The big change that campaigners want to see is the resentencing of IPPs so they can finally escape the psychological torture of their indefinite sentence. However, unfortunately, as of the 25th of October 2023, Alex Chalk has ruled this out as an option. I don't accept the suggestion, which initially, by the way, had commended itself to me, which is that you resentence everyone. Initially, I thought, well, maybe that was a sensible idea. But the more I've reflected upon it, the more I think that that wouldn't be the right thing to do for this reason. The fact remains that there are around 3,000 people in custody, either on their original sentence or because they've been recalled, where the parole board have decided, the expert parole board, this person is dangerous. Now, if you have a resentencing exercise, the judges doing their duty will be obliged to consider the facts of the original matter for which they were convicted. And no doubt that would mean a great number of people potentially being uh, released. Now, how on earth are the judges supposed to deal with the fact that parole board has decided this person is dangerous? And if released, that means 3,000 people having been convicted of serious matters who could potentially go on to commit appalling crimes. Any one of us in this room or people that we know and love could be attacked or worse by people who are released in a mass release in that way. So that doesn't commend itself to me. Now, the tragedy I accept is that the danger some of those individuals present may have been exacerbated by an iniquitous sentence. I accept that, and that is a tragedy. 
but it unfortunately doesn't get away from the fact that that person remains a danger to society. This talk of the mass release of 3,000 potentially dangerous prisoners seems misleading when putting the context of the original proposal for resentencing IPPs by Sir Bob Neill and the Justice Select Committee. What we were seeking to do uh, was not at all to say everybody will be resentenced immediately, everybody will be released immediately. Here's Sir Bob setting out his vision for the resentencing exercise back in May 2023. Because I know, having uh, acted in some cases uh, which involve sentences of this kind, there are some people who will always remain very dangerous. There are some people who, by the nature of the index offence, will remain in prison for a long time. And the, and the determinate sentence which they ultimately receive under our scheme might be a very long one. So the idea that this is opening the doors uh, is wrong. But what it does do, it gives certainty to everybody and it gives hope. Sir Bob has repeatedly advocated for an expert panel to manage the release of IPP prisoners on a case-by-case -case basis. But the screaming headline on the front page of the Daily Mail just eight days before Alex Chalk made his announcement not to re-sentence IPPs may indicate why he has taken such a hard line. Their headline, Violent Prisoners to be Let Out Early, was a reference to Chalk committing to releasing prisoners on determinate sentences 18 days early in order to address prison capacity. This headline is an indicator of the potential backlash from the right-wing media that faces any Justice Secretary who does finally release IPP prisoners, and why perhaps there has been no solution thus far. Lord Moylan told us as much earlier in the series. Nobody wants to take the risk of letting them out, because then you get the newspaper headlines. You know, this person was released by Dominic Raab, or Robert Buckland, or whatever. They are the guilty men, you know whoever was the Secretary of State for Justice at the time. Despite this scaremongering by the right-wing press, on a more personal level, when people are told more about IPPs and given an explanation about how they work, they without fail recognise how unjust the IPP sentence is. People don't have access to information about prisons in the same way that they do with other social institutions like schools or hospitals. So the only information that is put in your face is through the media. So I try to do a, it's, it's, it's very difficult not to you know, communicate my views, but I think it's important to be neutral and to just say, look, here are some facts and figures about the prison system. And what I find is that people struggle to psychologically comprehend that IPP exists. I have to explain it two or three times because at first people go, you what? That can't exist. Surely we don't do that. And I have to say, no, we, we do. And it can be very hard to get at the core of what's wrong with IPP, but what I've learned makes people get it is just to say, look, it's about imprisoning people based on what they might do, not what they've done. And that interferes with people's sense of natural justice. That's not how people think justice works. And proportionality is, is deeply ingrained in people's minds. Despite being in prison years beyond their original tariff, Mark and Andrew are some of the lucky ones. They're out of prison, and whilst under the restrictive licence, Andrew managed to get work at the MOJ, and Mark now works for the Prison Reform Trust. Both men are extremely resilient and have managed to survive the system, which, as we have heard, has broken many other IPPs. I asked Andrew to tell me how it happened for him. After you, you got 
your last release, which was in 2019, you went to work for the Ministry of Justice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did that come about? <clears throat> I had an opportunity because I was in an open prison. I was in Stamford Hill. This guy came in and he said, look, um, we have this programme. It's open to people who are not lifers and who are not on day release. So he went into some detail about some of these positions that were kind of entry-level positions in government departments. And when they told me that I couldn't apply because I was a lifer, I just said, whoa, hang on a minute. Are you actually coming in here to tell me what I could have won? Uh, and the guy, he, he, you know, he smiled. And I went to the governor and I said to the governor, I want to be able to apply like anybody else. I applied and the governor supported it. And so I went to work for the prison and probation ombudsman. So what was your intention? Why did you want to work in the PPO? Do you know what? I didn't necessarily want to work in the PPO. I was just excited about... Did you want to work in the Ministry of Justice? I just wanted to leave prison in gainful employment. I wanted to have an opportunity to turn my life around, to just do things that normal people do. I just started to think, if there's an opportunity here for me, then I really want to take it with both hands, and I did. I always think, what about the people that don't work for the Prison Reform Trust? What about the people that just get up on a daily basis and go to work on a building site? What about the people that are so mentally disturbed by serving that sentence they can't work? You know, what about what about that? What about the people that can't articulate themselves appropriately and not not because I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not intelligent or stuff like that, but I'm saying that the damage that people that, that it is affected. What about the people that that come across the probation officers as rude and arrogant and mistrusting because of what they've already suffered, but actually they're not committing crime, they're just, they're just trying to navigate through this mad sentence that is the IPP. What about them? They're the people that get recalled, they're the people that say you're not engaging. Well, they, people don't trust because they've been let down by the system so much that someone else in authority saying, well, if you don't do this, you'll be recalled. Evidence suggests that one of the consequences of the IPP sentence and attached licence conditions is that many of those who are released remain fearful of being recalled back to prison at any moment. I asked Andrew and Mark to tell me how this feels. You're currently on licence. I am, yeah. What is that like? I mean... It's horrible. It's literally like walking on eggshells. Do you feel paranoid? I wouldn't say paranoid, but... I would say acutely aware. You second guess every single move, and I thought it would get easier, but sadly it doesn't. Like I thought after a couple of years out, it just becomes a way of life. People on the tube in London are so bloody rude. They don't say excuse me, they just barge past you. Like I can't even challenge that type of behaviour. I can't say no, I have to keep my mouth shut every single time. And then what does that do to me as a human being? makes me feel dehumanising, it makes me feel like I'm less than someone else, it makes me feel like I haven't got a voice in certain arenas. Nobody's getting a sense of how to live a normal life as you know, people are expected to do. All they're used to being done to them is being locked up. In some cases treated inhumanely. Something that could get me recalled is someone making an allegation against me. Believe it or not, I was involved in an incident on London Bridge a couple of years ago where we tackled a terrorist and held them down. I was at a conference at London Bridge for the London Together programme, which I'm an alumni of. Usman Khan committed some terrorist acts where two of my friends were murdered, and I was one of the guys that held him down. On the 29th of November 2019, Usman Khan, a convicted terrorist, was shot dead whilst wearing a fake suicide belt by armed police outside Fishmongers Hall. 
He'd stabbed and killed two people at a prisoner rehabilitation and education event hosted by Learning Together, an initiative run by Cambridge University. Tonight, tales of heroism emerging in the terror attack on London Bridge. This video showing people fighting back with anything they could get their hands on. They used fire extinguishers, they used chairs, they used these narwhal tusks ripped off the wall in the heat of the moment. I'm proud to know them. Before Khan was shot, some people who were also at the event attempted to intervene and subdue him. In the course of our interview, I found out that one of these people was Mark Conway, on licence from his IPP sentence. Because we were on a life licence and scared of a life licence, we were still worried of how hard to go. So the guy had knives, he had a bomb strapped him, obviously it turned out to be fake, but we were still concerned and worried afterwards that had we gone over the top and, and attacked him too much and are we going get, to get recalled? And there was a couple of people on the bridge that day that helped stop it getting worse out of YPP prisoners and were life sentence prisoners. Osman Khan was originally sentenced to YPP, then he appealed it and then it overturned. So some people say if he was serving YPP, he wouldn't have been out and that to commit that. Uh, if Osman Khan didn't, commit it on that day, he was always going to get out of prison and, and commit an offence. People come under big pressure, there was a lot of, politically, there was a lot of blame, blaming and, and putting blame where it shouldn't have been. I mean, Cambridge University in a learning together programme come under immense pressure when actually he was on 24-hour surveillance, he was on the tag, MI5 allowed him to go to the bridge that day, he was supposed, you, you never hear that, it's, oh, the do-gooders from Cambridge, it's their fault. With all that anxiety, and that worry, you still took the action to, to intervene on that bridge. Yeah, I think there's, so there's something about loyalty, I think, and I think because I saw my friends being attacked and getting involved and stuff like that, I would, would I have, if I was just walking down the street and saw that on the other side of the road, would I have got involved? I probably can't, I can't say I, I would have, I couldn't. But there's something about that bond of serving such a sentence and actually serving with the guys that I see chasing down the bridge, some of them. And there's something about that experience and of going through such a sentence together in the same prison that kind of bonds you. And I think that's what cuts the people that got involved in that day to the people that didn't. Again, people were saying, don't hurt him, don't go over the top. Da, 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 da. And then afterwards, we was all worried. We was all saying, do you think we've gone over the top? And even though the police turned up and shot him. I'm like, I need to speak to my probation officer now. Like the first thing before I rang my mum, and I had to ring my probation officer for a number of things. I had to, one, to let her know that I was safe. Two, to let her know that I had done nothing wrong. And three, because I didn't want the victims of my crimes to turn on the TV and see my face on there. Because I felt if they complained, could that then get me recalled? Like, it was just weird, and even though when you sit back out of it and you, and you look at it... So you called your probation officer before you called your mum? Of course. The probation officer has more power than my mother. <laughs> you know, they, they, and not to say that she would have been unreasonable, she was, they, they was really supportive through that whole time. I can't have a bad word to say about them, but my first thought was, I now need to protect myself legally. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a different type of way, so I thought I'd, the first person I needed to ring was, was my probation officer and, and just to tell her what's happened and stuff like that. Political change for IPPs has moved at a snail's pace. It's 11 years since the IPP was abolished in 2012, yet nearly 3,000 people are still in prison, serving a sentence that some parts of the media are calling torture sentences and the United Nations has called cruel, inhuman and degrading. The one thing, the cornerstone of this supposedly great British 
justice system is that your punishment must fit the crime. For me, I would suggest it's against every human rights of a prisoner and, it, and it's a miscarriage of justice in itself. Enough is enough. It needs to change now. While I've always accepted that prison was inevitable for what I did, I don't accept that the period of custody was proportionate. People, in my experience, people serving IPP mostly say, yeah, do you know what, I deserve to go to prison. And, I, and sometimes I deserved to go there for, for quite a long time. But I didn't deserve this. And I think we as a society need a much more informed conversation about how we do punishment in a way that most people regard as fair and just and safe, because public protection is, is not, not an inconsequential thing. But I think we have a very blunt idea of what protects the public and what doesn't. If you want to get in touch, you can find me and the team on X, formerly known as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or TikTok at trapped underscore pod. If you want to do something, you can tell a friend to listen to this series. Knowledge is power and the more who know, the harder it is for injustice to take place. If you want to do something more active, you can write your MP and tell them to raise questions about IPP prisoners in Parliament. To keep up to date with the Campaigns for Justice, search the hashtag Justice for IPPs on social media. Please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and stay tuned for a new episode dropping soon.